could we have the last, the first two slides of that last song up on the screen? There we go. Let this be our prayer. This, this slide and the next slide. O Spirit of the living God, Thou light and fire divine, descend upon Thy church once more and make it truly Thine. Fill it with love and joy and power, with righteousness and peace, till Christ shall dwell in human hearts and sin and sorrow cease. Amen. There's a story about a high school running back, football running back, that was just amazing, phenomenal athlete. And he was recruited by all the great pro uh, college teams. And he finally signed a contract to, to a scholarship with Notre Dame. And he went there to play football. But his college career was not going so well. And so his coaching staff went back and looked at his high school films. And what they saw there was a pulling guard. Those of you who are football fans will know what a pulling guard is. The rest of you, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> there was a pulling guard that played in his high school team for four years and never missed a blocking assignment. The truth was that the pulling guard was the real hero. He was the one who paved the way for the running back. But the guard got no recognition. Nobody knew his name. Christian ministry is a lot like football. It's a team sport. Everyone has a part to play. Most of you are well aware that for nearly a year, King of Kings has been in the process of searching for a new rector. Next Sunday, as a matter of fact, will be the anniversary of Randy Forrester's last Sunday with us. It is not my place, nor is it my plan, to discuss the progress that our pastoral search committee has made, but they all deserve our praise and our support. My purpose today is to address the role that the rest of us are going to play. What are we called to do? In today's epistle lesson, Paul exhorts the Ephesian church to walk in a manner of the calling of which you have been called. That is to say, to do what you're called to do, to behave appropriately in relationship to one another. What were they called to do? What were they to behave, how were they to behave in relationship to one another? Could it be that in their calling, Paul would also speak to us about our calling, our role at King of Kings going forward? Let's take a look. Turn in your Bibles, if you have them with you, to Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll look at the first 16 verses in order. Most of you have your Bibles electronically. There is a movement, a development in Paul's exhortation that begins with their attitude toward one another, moves through their spiritual reality, through the gifting of the body of Christ, through the equipping of the saints, to maturity of faith and doctrine, and ends in genuine love for one another. First, what should be our attitude toward one another? 
Paul writes to the Ephesians that they are to walk with all humility and gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Humility has been defined as standing as tall as you can in the presence of God, all the while realizing your unworthiness. Paul does not ask for false humility, which is self-deprecating. What Paul means by humility in relationship to one another is that we should count others of greater worth than we do ourselves. Gentleness, patience, love, and peace are virtues listed in Paul's epistle to the Galatians among the fruit of the Spirit. There, Paul writes, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These virtues are the fruit of the Holy Spirit at work in his church. Here in Ephesians, he exhorts us to bear with one another, to be eager to maintain unity. Beloved, that implies to me some effort on our part. It may not be easy to bear with one another. It may take energy to be eager to maintain unity. We must face the fact that some of us are just hard to bear with. Unity of the Spirit doesn't always come easy. Paul would argue that the outcome, however, the end result is worth the effort. The peace that results from bearing with one another is more than absence of hostility. It is genuine unity in the Holy Spirit. Second, what then is our spiritual reality? Paul writes, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. When Paul speaks of one hope, he does not mean something we wish for, but rather the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Inasmuch as we are divided into multiple bodies with multiple lords and multiple faiths, we are broken and in need of redemption. All who are in Christ are part of that one body. It is a spiritual reality that transcends our differences. As Paul says repeatedly in chapter 1 of Ephesians, we are in Christ. We may struggle to work out the details in this life, but the truth is there is only one body, only one spirit, only one hope, only one Lord, only one faith only one baptism, only one God and Father of all. Third, what can we say about the gifts given to the body of Christ? Paul writes, But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Grace is defined as free and unmerited favor. Are we given just a little grace? No, we're given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. We're given grace pressed down and running over. Therefore, Paul says, when he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. 
On the day of his ascension, Jesus told his followers, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church, and with the Spirit an endless variety of gifts given for the common good. We don't have time now, but I encourage you to look at those gifts listed in Romans 12 and in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. See how those gifts are exercised in the body of Christ, the church. Paul also lists gifts here in Ephesians, and we will look at those next. Fourth, what does Paul say about the equipping of the saints? He writes, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. This is the core of what I think the Lord would say to us today. For that reason, I've titled this sermon, Equipping the Saints. The gifts Paul lists here are all offices within the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. I'll show you a little hand trick so you can remember that. The apostles are the thumb. They are the overseers, the bishops. They touch everybody. The prophets are like the index finger that points the way. The evangelists are like the middle finger. It's the longest finger with the farthest reach. The pastors are like the ring finger. It's connected to the heart. And the teachers are like the little finger, vital for strength, but often overlooked. Now I want you to grab the hand of somebody near you and squeeze. I'll do that with Eric. Squeeze. Now, now hold your little finger away with the other hand and see how, see how you squeeze. You see how weak your hand is without that little finger? The point is, without teachers, the church is weak. Pray for the teachers. But ministry is not unique, a unique possession of these five offices. Ministry is an every member responsibility. These offices are not merely appointed. They are empowered by the Holy Spirit to, offer, to order, in order to uh, equip the saints with the work, for the work of ministry. They're given for the building up of the body of Christ. As I said a few weeks ago, if King of Kings is going to be the church God created us to be, it is essential that each of us respond to the call upon our lives. That is to say, we must share in the work of ministry. We must do our part for the building up of the body of Christ. No one is called to do everything, but everyone is called to do something. Our new rector's primary role will be to equip the rest of us for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ. Fifth, what does maturity in faith and doctrine look like? Paul wrote to the Ephesians that we should all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, 
by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Unity is important, but Paul does not encourage unity at the cost of doctrine. He speaks of unity of the faith, the faith. The definite article is important, especially in the Greek. It is not just any faith. It is the faith, in the words of Jude, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Article 6 of the 39 Articles of Religion reads, Holy Scripture contains all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not required of any man that it should be believed as an article of the faith, or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. Every bishop, priest, and deacon of the Anglican Church must affirm that they believe the Holy Scripture to be the Word of God. The faith is found between the covers of this book. Guarding the faith is the calling of every Christian, and especially of the ordained clergy, if only they would do so. Unity founded upon agreement to disagree is absurdity. Let me say that again. Praise God. <laughs> Unity founded upon an agreement to disagree is an absurdity. If there is no agreement on doctrine, there can be no unity in the Spirit. Knowledge of the Son of God is likewise based on the revelation of Jesus Christ found in Holy Scripture. And we are to grow up into His image, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul continues, So that you may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, if you've ever been at sea in a storm, you understand what it means to be tossed to and fro by the waves, to be carried about by the wind. Being grounded, being anchored in the Scripture is our only defense against false doctrine. Beloved, so many things sound good to us today, but right conduct follows right doctrine. Too many of us are children in our understanding of the Holy Scripture. Like newborn infants, Peter says in his first epistle, we long for the pure spiritual milk. Every truly born-again Christian has a hunger for the Word of God. Therein is found right doctrine. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 17 that the Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the Word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They were eager to hear Paul's teaching, but they searched the scripture to be certain that what they were hearing was not human cunning or some deceitful scheme. Beginning with the Jer Council of Jerusalem recorded in Acts 15 and continuing through the centuries, the church has carefully examined the word of God found in Holy Scripture to be certain that what it is taught is right doctrine, orthodoxy. It is worth noting that the first count Jerusalem council 
that at the First Jerusalem Council, they dealt with sexual immorality. Writing a letter to the churches to abstain from sexual immorality. The 21st century church, meeting just a month ago, once again in Jerusalem, is still dealing with sexual immorality. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. All sin is self-destructive behavior. We're called to turn from sin and live. God does not want to prevent us from having a good time. He wants us to be mature in the faith, to know the fullness of Christ, to live an abundant life. Finally, it all ends in genuine love for one another. Paul writes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We are to speak the truth in love, Truth without love is harsh and unforgiving. Love without truth is mere mush. Real truth is spoken out of a caring heart. Real love speaks tenderly the truth. Love seeks the highest good for others. A call to repentance is a loving word. We must acknowledge Christ as the head of the body. We are the parts the hands that do the working, the feet that do the walking, the eyes that do the seeing, the ears that do the hearing, the mouth that does the speaking. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds up itself in love. Beloved, we are the body of Christ, equipped, as Paul said to Timothy, for every good work. John Rogers, who's an Anglican bishop and former dean of Trinity School for Ministry, was my systematics theology professor. John used to ask, where is the cross? He would pull a book from the shelf and see what it said about the cross of Jesus Christ. If it was wrong on the cross, he put the book back on the shelf. He believed that we are to preach Christ and him crucified. So where is the cross in what we've looked at this morning? The cross is found in our imitation of Christ. It is found in our obedience to the calling upon our lives, in our humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another. As Christ Jesus humbled himself and became a man, as he was obedient even to the cross, so we are called to humility and obedience. Where is the cross? It is found in our work of ministry, in the building up of the body of Christ, in our preaching and teaching. Just as Jesus came among us to proclaim the nearness of the kingdom of God, so we're called to proclaim the good news of God in Christ. Where is the cross? It is found in our sacrificial love for one another. Just as Jesus laid down his life for his friends, so we're called to do nothing less, to build up the body in love for one another. Where is the cross? It is found in our defense of the faith. 
in our defense of sound doctrine. In doing so, there will be a cost to pay, but there will also be a great reward. I remember the first Christmas card that Carolyn and I sent to friends and family after we were born again and filled with the Spirit. The message also comes from the epistle to the Ephesians, from chapter 2, verse 6. On the front of the card was a picture of a man seated among a lot of opened packages. Ribbons and bows were scattered all around. There was a Christmas tree in the background. The man looked dejected, as if he had not received what he hoped. Under the picture were these words, Keep looking down. You opened the card, and inside it said, You are seated with Christ in heavenly places. We are chosen by God to sit with Christ in heavenly places. Our conduct, therefore, must be honoring to his name. Let me invite you back to my comments on spiritual reality. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all and in all. There is one Holy Spirit, one Lord Jesus Christ, one God and Father of all, one triune God. Your baptismal vows call out to you to be reconciled to the one true God and to follow him in obedience. Will you do your part?